Hit it. This one's probably going to be a... <laughs> a man is filling up his car tank with gasoline and accidentally gets some on his hand. He doesn't notice it, so when he gets in the car, he lights a cigarette and his arm instantly catches on fire. The man sticks his arm out of the window and begins to wave it around, attempting to blow out the flames crawling up his sleeve. Policeman sees the man struggling with his arm on fire and arrests him on the spot for an unlicensed firearm. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I like what do you do if attacked by a clan of clowns? You go for the juggler. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, let's see. Let's get serious here. All right. We are actually on chapter 12. 28 weeks. 28 weeks we have been studying Hebrews. That's, what, half a year or more? Well, I mean, it's 50, what, it's 52 weeks? It's been that long. <laughs> it's been that long. <laughs> wow. Yes, that's what I said. Um, this one, I, I really like it. Uh, next week, I'm super excited about because we're going to get into the different types of discipline and different levels and things like that. So it's going to be really, really good. But today, this one, I actually probably should have renamed it, and you'll see why uh, in a second. But let's start with verse 1. I, I feel like this is going to help us like um, in times of wounding. Roberta said good morning. Morning, Roberta. Uh, times of wounding or offense and things like that. So it says in uh, verse 1, As for us, we have all of these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and the sin we so easily fall into. Then we will be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out before us. Okay, so the path is Jesus Christ. You guys have uh, heard me teach about in Joshua, I believe, uh, chapter 3, where the angel of the Lord told Joshua, and we know that whenever you see the phrase angel of the Lord, it's referring to a pre-incarnate pre form of uh, Jesus. Angel is not a being, it's a function. So it's a messenger. And uh, so the messenger of the Lord, who Jesus Christ is the Word, right? He was the Word uh, from the beginning. He's still the Word, and He will always be the Word. The Word made flesh. And so as an Old Testament, I guess you could maybe say figure, He would come as a messenger. It's very interesting. And He went to Joshua, and He told him, He said, the Lord's going to visit basically in three days, so what you need to do is gather up all your officers who could represent the fivefold ministers, go throughout the camp and get them ready, and they need to sanctify themselves because in three days he's gonna, um, you know, show up. Okay, so he goes through uh, the camp. Now it's time to cross the Jordan, and at that time of year, the Bible tells us it was harvest time, so the banks were overflowing because of all the rains. So imagine it's not like you know crossing a little creek. It was a raging river, and I like how Joshua phrases it because it says that the priest dipped his foot in the water. <laughs> I'd be in that too. You know, seeing, making sure 
that when he dipped his foot in the water, the water rose, rose and stood in a heap all the way back at a city named Adam. So that story is a very, very prophetic story at the end of the age where uh, the end of the age is the harvest, right, according to what, Matthew 12 or 13. Uh, we're going to be surrounded by death, according to the scriptures. Uh, and that's where we're going to cross over. That's when our high priest returns and we cross over from life to death, or from death to life, with our resurrection bodies. But here was the key. So the, the instruction was, you keep your eye on the ark, but you have to stay 2,000 cubits behind. Now we know that the ark represents Jesus Christ because when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, the legend has it that Jeremiah and other people that were priestly whisked the ark away before Nebuchadnezzar's armies invaded. By the time the Lord came in the flesh, there was no ark in the temple. It was just a stone slab. And that was prophetic of Jesus Christ, now the Ark of God. We're now the Ark of God. So the the race that's already been marked out before us is the race or the marathon that Jesus lived. So we just follow his footsteps. We keep him ahead of us. Now, of course, I'm sure y'all see uh, 2,000 cubits behind is obviously prophetic because 2,000 years post-Jesus will actually be, what, 2033, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken. Some people think, think it's 35, but it's okay. right in there. Yeah, right in there, almost 2,000 years. Not saying, don't, you know, <laughs> that he's coming back in 2033, but <clears throat> that would probably be a very interesting year, uh, 2022, 2033. Um, so, speaking of patterns. Okay, now... Remember, and I know I, you know, I'm gonna say this every Sunday, but I don't want to lose sight of what Paul's main focus was in this letter, and it was written to Hebrews facing excommunication and persecution from other Jews because they believed in Jesus Christ, and so that was like an anathema. That was, you know, you've forsaken the law of Moses, and so because of their community and how it was set up. To be excommunicated meant you also lost your business, your income, because Jews would only do business with other Jews that were part of the temple community, etc., etc. So there was a whole big, you know, situation going on for these Jewish people where it could greatly impact them. And so because of that, some of them were thinking about going back to Judaism. That way they could get back to their normal life. And not to mention the psychological, the emotional, the mental distress. You know, if you've ever been part of a group of people or a church where things didn't work out very well, it's stressful uh, and emotionally difficult to walk away from those relationships. Children no longer getting to be friends with the other children. So it was a really difficult thing. So he goes through, remember, the first part of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ, the new covenant that he was cut, that he cut, the old is passing away even as Paul spoke. Then he goes into the faith chapter and he lays out a very clear picture of others who had gone before them who didn't even see the promises and they died believing the promises they received. 
we live in the time of fulfilled promise. Jesus Christ has come. So he laid all of that out to also let them know that if they could do it, you can do it too. If they were able to be sawn in two and all the other horrible things they went through, then you can suffer persecution as well. He also goes into the severity in Hebrews 6 and 10 of walking away from God, being spirit-filled, tasting the age to come, all of those things, and then to walk away from Jesus Christ, to count His blood as common by going back to a system that was passing away was so grievous to the Holy Spirit that according to Hebrews 10, it'd be better if you weren't even born to, to, to forsake Jesus Christ, right? So he's a very strong message here that you need to stay with Jesus Christ. Do not go back to what you lost or what uh, is dying. Now he's saying that we've got witnesses, witnesses that have gone before us. And even at that time, I'm sure there were already Christians that had been killed for their faith. He said there's witnesses that encircle us like clouds. Now that word witness is martis in the Greek. And I'm sure you can see it's where we get the term martyr. Okay. It's, quote, one who has information or knowledge of something and hence one who can give information, bring to light, or confirm something. It's also used of those who have suffered death for their faith in God. So Paul is pointing to those who have died for their faith and they're now watching the Hebrews run the race they've already ran. Now what is Paul doing? Paul is shifting their focus from the temporary natural difficulties they're experiencing to the supernatural, to the eternal. Because when you start struggling, your focus, like you're out of focus, you're, you're starting to look at the natural, starting to look at what problem or obstacle, whether it's your body, whether it's finances, whether it's relationship, whatever it is, you begin to look at the natural problem and that becomes bigger than eternity. Here, they had a life or death situation. And so Paul's telling them, the only way you're going to run your race is not if you look here on earth, but if you keep your eyes focused on the eternal. It's kind of like if you run on a treadmill. If you look down at the treadmill, guess what? You're going to stumble and you're going to fall. You have to keep your eyes focused, right? Same thing with the car. You can't look at rights in front of you. You have to look a little bit ahead or you're going to end up off the road, okay? So that's the thing he's telling them. You have to have an eternal perspective. Your decision now in the face of tremendous persecution can affect you eternally, okay? So that's what he's trying to say. But I want to draw your attention to something. This is what I really want to spend the time on, which is why I probably should have uh, titled this different. The Passion Translation. So where it says, So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and the sin we so easily fall into. Okay, in the commentary on the Passion, it says we must let go of every wound that, can, that has pierced us. It can be translated... Get rid of every arrow tip in us. Now, I thought that was interesting because it's just the tip. So it's implying that there's an arrow tip inside, a wound, and that tip is weighing them down. So it's the offense. And we'll get into what the words are, but it can be the wounding, the offense, the hurt, 
the things like that that happen. But I'm sure y'all have all seen like in action movies, like back in you know Gladiator and the Patriot stuff, when they would use arrows, you would just break. What's that called? The wood. <laughs> spear. Anybody have? Is it yeah. spear? Because you have spear, you got a spear shaft. Shaft. That's it. I have been trying to think of what that was for like two weeks. So you get, you know, the arrow, that the tip is in you, and they'll break the shaft off so they can continue to fight. Well, over time, you're focused on the fight, right? You're focused on the battle you're in, and you may not realize how many arrow tips your soul has been punctured with, and you're just breaking them off, and you're going to keep going on in battle, and then all of a sudden... You're way down. All of a sudden, maybe there's depression, or maybe you realize you're more hurt, or maybe you realize you're offended. Maybe you realize that your connection to God isn't maybe the same as it was before. And so these tips can begin to collect in our soul. My mother tells a story. She had been gardening or whatever, and she got a uh, thorn, a rose thorn, in her hand, and she dug around on it. and. But it would never heal right, hmm. you know, and it'd fester up, and she would open it up and try to, you know. Anyway, long story short, and I can't remember exactly. Anyway, she ended up, let's just say it happened on her arm, but on the tip of her finger one day, she got the sore, and she opened it up, and there was that rose tip. It got into her blood system, and it traveled through the body and came out. Wow. So, you know, I pictured that whenever yeah. uh, you were talking about that. That sometimes we can collect this stuff and they may end up being somewhere different than, uh, you know, but it's going to come Very out. Very good. It's going to come out, yeah, eventually. And the main reason it comes out is actually uh, the next sentence where it says the sin we so easily fall into. And we're going to dive into that because I never connected soul wounding <clears throat> with the sin here. And, and the Lord, He really connected it for me when I was studying. So the uh, implication is carrying an arrow tip inside, a wound that weighs us down and keeps us from running our race with freedom. So Paul next links the wounding to sin. So in the Aramaic, the phrase, the sin we so easily fall into, is, quote, the sin that so cleverly entangles us or the sin that is ready and waiting for us. Now, I immediately thought of Genesis 4, which is where we're going to go in a second. So, Paul has already shown in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 how doubt and unbelief lead to sin, right? It's the deception of sin that begins to harden the heart because of doubt and unbelief. Now, he's tying wounding to sin. And I instantly thought of, you know, Christians I've met over the years where they get hurt by church or they get wounded or you know, something like that. And all of a sudden, they think the answer to that is just to go back to what they need. You know, I, I had more friends in bars. I'll, I'll go back to that, or I'll start hanging out with my drug friends, or I'll start doing all this. And it's like, well, that's kind of you know, defeating the purpose. Number one of you having freedom is for, you know, just because you got offended, like, do you think that by you going back to that, that that's actually going to hurt the person who offended you? They could care less. You know, they're going to continue probably growing and learning and hopefully, and you're offended and now you're, you know, hooked on meth and can't get off. Like, it's a very weird dynamic, which I could never figure out. But now I see 
how that happens, and it's those arrows that get pierced into our soul. Now, the lying in wait. Okay, this is cool. I say this years ago. I wish I could find my notes. I think it was back in the day where I used to handwrite all my notes, and maybe I have them somewhere. I'm not sure. Uh, it's probably like 1999, I bet, when I first studied this. And uh, it's uh, the story of uh, Cain and Abel. Let me give you just a, a quick, because this one's, I think, pretty short, but let me give you a quick synopsis here. If you look in the original language, Adam and Eve, you know, post-fall, have Cain. So he's a firstborn. Then they have Abel. Some say there are twins. They might have been. Uh, there's not a, and then Adam knew her again. So there is a good indication that they were twins. But here is what I do know. The name of Cain, which is interesting, means spear. Uh, and for them, you can see that by naming him that and then naming Abel vanity, they thought Cain was the seed promised that would crush the enemy's head. And so, like any firstborn, they put a lot of expectation on Cain. And I think possibly what occurred is they, it's almost like the entitlement thing that happens. Everybody gets a trophy, etc., etc. It's like he began to think too highly of himself. And so he decided that he would do things his way. Abel, on the other hand, he's like the little brother of which he's vanity. Why do we need another child? We've already got the seed. Okay? And that's usually how it works. All the brothers of David were rejected. It was the baby that was forgotten out in the field dealing with some sheep that was the next king. So it's kind of that same pattern, because that is a pattern. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so here we go. Let's, let's go ahead and read before I get any further. Uh, in verse 1 of Genesis 4, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Okay, so that's why they think they were twins. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground like his dad. Remember? Uh, Adam was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now that's very important, the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, there's so much here. That's why I love the Old Testament. Goodness. I had a little bit of a rough time getting my leg up there. Pardon me. Everybody that's watching it, no, I do not have gas. Okay, so this is a story about faith. Religion always kills faith. And when I say religion, I'm referring to form without power. Regulation without relationship, right? Okay, Cain, as a tiller of the ground, there's nothing wrong actually with bringing an offering from the ground. In fact, it was prescribed later in the law. But here's the deal. Cain did it out of his own resource. Abel had to do it out of faith. 
because he brought not only the firstborn of his flock, but he also brought the fat portions. How did he know the firstborn? How did he know the fat? That's not anywhere in the Bible before. That begins with Abel. He had to have a direct revelation from God of what pleased him. God let him know. Number one, he probably knew blood had to be shed because we remember that Adam and Eve clothed themselves, yet they still felt naked, right, when the Lord showed up because they had lost the glory. All have fallen sin uh, short and uh, have sinned and lost the glory. So the glory is what God has always been after to restore. So even that song, Show Me Your Glory, love it, absolutely love it. But it irritates me just a little, and I'll tell you why. Because that was an Old Testament reality. Show me your glory. Because God could not dwell in man. But the glory of God is now in us. The glory has been revealed in the face of the Son. So we, the only thing that needs to be done is an unveiling of Christ in you. The expectation of glory. You don't have to necessarily ask Him to show you. You just got to be looking. Right? You just center in on Holy Spirit and the presence and even the Word, if He has you reading the Word, and He begins to unveil His glory. Remember, that's what 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 is. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. And we all, as beholding in a mirror, gaze face to face into Jesus Christ, and we're being transformed glory to glory where it appears like maybe there's a level, but it's actually not. The original language is basically summed up God now lives in you and He unveils His glory to you. There's no level. It's He just unveils another aspect of Himself on the inside of you, right? We're the 42nd generation. So Abel had to hear the word of the Lord. He knew God required an animal sacrifice because God Himself shed the first blood to clothe Adam and Eve. So He knew that was a requirement. He then had to get from the Lord himself that it was firstborn, that's what the Lord wanted, and the fat. And we know that later those became laws, right? And so you got to have that, you got to have the fat. So Abel, by faith, brought his offering. Cain, out of his own reliance, his own expertise, nothing was required of him to have faith, brought his offering. Okay. So what happened? Well, the word regard. And this is why I wish I could find my notes to know where I trace this down. This is what happened in heaven. So just picture it. If you have to close your eyes, go ahead. So the Father is on His throne, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before He became man, He's, he's there as well, Holy Spirit. Abel offers his offering to the Lord, and God sets back, looks at probably the Lord, looks at the Holy Spirit, looks at all the divine beings, and said, did you see that? Did you just see what happened? Because it was the first time a demonstration of faith was executed on the earth since the fall. So faith has always and will always be what pleases Him. So, there's faith. Abel astonished God with his faith. If you can astonish God, if you want to know how to do that, Operate in faith. Remember the Roman centurion? He comes to the Lord. I need my servant healed. He's obviously a good man who loves, you know, his servant. 
And the Lord's like, okay, I'll get up and come to you. And uh, you know, he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. He said, I'm a man of authority. I'm under authority. I have those that are under me. I know if you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And the Lord's like, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. You know, I mean, it astonished him. And so that's what, you know, if you want to just bring him into that place of astonishment, it's faith. That's what does it, right? So his, his uh, astonishment at Abel's offering, we know they could tangibly tell somehow. They, the author doesn't tell us how did they know God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Was there like some supernatural uh, activity where his was consumed with fire and Abel's was just left there awkwardly with crickets? I mean, we don't know, but we do know that they were aware of the one God received and that he did not receive Cain's. Okay. Now, I do want to get into the definition of regard out of one of my resources. It refers to, it's like a, it's like a coin. You, it, you can have either way. It's a verb that means to look with favor or in dismay. So they both had regard, but Abel's was with favor. favor. Abel's was with favor, and Cain's was with dismay. <laughs> it means to look on something with approval or to look on some burdensome thing or situation in dismay. That's the core of religion. That's why he hates it. Because religion is a dependence upon oneself. That's why it's form without power, right? Relationship requires an exchange. It requires a dependence. Uh, it might have been Elena I was talking to, but we were talking about humility. Humility and pride are the same, or self, uh, false humility and pride are the same coin. On one side's pride, arrogance, whatever. I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I can do everything myself. On the other side is self-deprecation, which is, I'm a worm, I'm a sinner, you're beating yourself up, your thoughts about yourself may feel and at times appear humble, but they're actually attacks against yourself. Humility is simply saying what God says about you. That's it. And you know that what He's saying about you is beyond you. Because you know that you are not those things He's saying. Therefore, His confession over you requires dependence on Him to carry it out, right? So it's, it's agreeing with God and it's obeying God. That's what humility is and that's how you'll finish your race well. When you start thinking too highly of yourself or you start thinking too lowly of yourself, guess what? You're going to fall. If you look at Saul, he was like, why are you coming to me? Because of all the background of their tribe, remember, they men wanted to sleep with that Levite, and the guy's like, whoa, no, 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 we're not going to do that, but here, take the concubine. So they rape her all night, she crawls to the doorstep and dies, and he cuts her into pieces, and then, it, you know, all the tribes are horrified, and so they all go to Benjamin, and they're like, hey, you better hand over these reprobates, and they're like, no. So now they're in a battle and they're fighting twice and Benjamin is kicking butt and taking names. And that's because of the prophecy over Benjamin in Genesis chapter 50 or 49. That's what Benjamin does. Benjamin wars. So they're like, after the second failure, 
oh, maybe we should ask God what we should do. Been there, done that. And uh, the Lord's like, we'll do this, do this. And then they get so carried away in battle, they almost wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. I think there were maybe like 6,000 left. And they're like, what are we going to do now? <laughs> We've almost wiped out an entire tribe. I know. So then they kidnap women and take, because they didn't want them marrying their women. So they kidnap these women and take them over to Benjamin and say, hey, sorry we almost wiped out your entire line, but here's some women maybe that will help make up for it. <laughs> Crazy people back then, seriously. But anyway, it works. They begin to repopulate, but Saul had that. The tribe of Benjamin had a shame, a shame on it. And so he had a false humility. Then, when he began to have a level of success and a level of the authority and the anointing that was upon him as king, then it went to his head. And he became, uh, he thought high, more highly of himself than he should. And there was nothing wrong with having a king. It was just the wrong one. He was being prepared. So anyway, all that to say is that we've got this word where it's like a coin. On one side is the dismay of God. On the other side is the favor of God. And it's always going to be faith. Always. It also has the idea of looking intently with something and with high regard and appreciation, and it can also mean look away. God only regards faith. Unbelief will bring him dismay. And unbelief is a persistent refusal to believe him. Okay. Now, again, I don't know how God demonstrated his rejection of Cain's uh, sacrifice and Abel's uh, approval, but we do know that uh, Cain was ticked. Now, this word anger, nahar, in the Hebrew means to burn, to be kindled, and to grow warm. But here's the thing. It's not a typical anger where it's like a flashpan anger where maybe you're angry at um, traffic or, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, it's an anger that has a focus of an action to follow. Now, being true crime, right, you see this all the time, where people get so angry they become obsessed with their object that, that, that they're focused on. And to them, the only way to eliminate the anger is to eliminate the object. So that's what Cain is feeling. He's in a murderous anger, which Cain and Abel, like Abel probably had no idea that Cain was going to kill him. He was able, have y'all, how many of y'all have ever had a cold anger? Have you ever had that happen? You have? Have y'all a cold anger? So it's you may, usually something that's happened in the past that you're looking back, but you're still angry about it, but it's not like a heated... Yeah. Okay, so I could be fiery, mm -hmm. but if I ever, like my facial expression slows, my body language slows, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of calm, I'm not in a cold anger. <laughs> so what that means is I'm beyond anger. Mm -hmm. So now it's like, you know, you need to leave me alone, or we're going to have a problem. And I've only experienced that maybe three or four times. Um, that's what this was. It's the same thing with Absalom. You know, he gets he gets in trouble because he killed the man who raped his half-sister. Now back, or his sister. So back then, raping a woman meant she could never marry. She could never have children. She was considered unclean. So he <clears throat> destroyed his sister and David did nothing about it. So Absalom's like, fine. And he was indifferent, if you read the scripture. And then he invites him to dinner, and then he kills him. And then he gets kicked out, right? 
So he gets kicked out of the kingdom. Then David, you know, Joab's like, man, you need to get him back. I mean, really, you need to understand, he killed this man because he raped his sister. This is injustice. So he gets him back, and everything seems fine. Everything's good. But there's an offense there. There's an arrow tip in Absalom's soul because his dad did not take up for him or his sister. Right? So he got father wounds. The worst are father wounds. And so he just bides his time. And then all of a sudden, he realizes through methodically executing his plan, he can take over the kingdom. Right? So that's cold anger. You may not recognize when a person is in cold anger because they hide it very well. And so Abel probably had no idea. That's the anger that Cain was in. It's someone who is enraged. Uh, they can be very competitive, always trying to outdo another person. That can be a sign of it as well. It can also be a state of worry and concern because they uh, are angry, so it's causing some conflict. But Cain's anger will not be satisfied until he takes action against Abel, which I found interesting. He didn't blame God. He blamed Abel. Now, the Lord obviously is trying to reason with him. Well, he feels like Abel is taking his place in Oh, absolutely. Because he was competitive. He was a firstborn. He was the seed that was supposed to crush the enemy's head. See, so he had all that expectation. And man, if people can learn to hold loosely to expectation, whether it's expectation of yourself, whether it's expectation that you place on others, Obviously, the argument can be, shouldn't we expect people to behave a certain way? Well, possibly, possibly. Um, but here's the situation. When you start hanging tightly to expectation that you place on people or yourself, and then when it doesn't turn out the way you expect, because it never will, <laughs> it'll either be better or worse, it doesn't matter. Then, if it ends up not being how you expected it, all of a sudden you're in offense or you're down on yourself. So Cain had all these expectations put on him. Now, they didn't know. They did the best they could. They're feeling the shame of causing the fall of the entire human race. You know what I mean? Adam and Eve, it was their domain. They caused everything we're in now. Alright? So I'm sure they felt the ramifications and they put their hope in this firstborn son and it was a recipe for disaster. So learning how to navigate through expectation is a, a very spiritual thing to do, actually. Okay, so the door's been opened. He's angry. The father's trying to reason with him. He said, your brother has nothing to do with it. He's like, don't you know if you do well, you'll also be accepted or regarded? The word well means to do what is pleasing in the Hebrew. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith living within us, it would be impossible to please God. For we come to God in faith, knowing that He is real, and that He rewards the faith of those who give all their passion and strength into seeking them. Okay? Or Him. So God, at this point, at your greatest point of failure, at your greatest place of disappointment, at your greatest place of maybe I messed up and I shouldn't, there is always an invitation to a journey of faith. Always. Your greatest failure is the greatest invitation to faith. Isn't that neat? Like, what does he tell Eve? Because you had your husband eat, right? You're going to have 
uh, pain and labor, and you'll no longer be a, a, a co or a joint ruler with your husband. But from you will come the seed. There's always an invitation. Even if we do it, he always invites us to clean up the mess, right? And so that's what he's doing right here. He's inviting him to learn from this lesson. Let's work together and let's figure this thing out. And then, here's the thing. He refused. And he said, if you do not do well, or, here's where it's important, if you don't enter back into that place of faith, sin is waiting at the door. It's crouching. Okay? If you do well, it'll be pleasing. And then we can see from both of those statements that a lack of faith is an open door to sin, which then also agrees with our current text of wounding leading to sin because the Hebrews were being wounded over and over and over and they were about to get into some doubt and unbelief and sin. So here in Genesis, Holy Spirit personifies sin as something that is crouching at the door just waiting for the opportunity to pounce. Crouching means to lie down like animals do. So I'm going to take the picture of a lion because that's how the enemy is described in Peter, right? A lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. The word door means an opening or an unobstructed area providing entrance. We can see that sin's desire is for Cain. So sin has a ravenous desire that can never be satisfied. But get this, did y'all notice this? If you look back in Hebrews, it says, but you must rule over it. Okay, let's tackle this for a second. Sin has always been something a human can rule over pre-Jesus or post-Jesus. Now, this is where truth confronts BS. That's from my podcast, Healing uh, Community, Healing Business with Coach Greg. It's a place where truth confronts BS. Too many Christians believe that they're just helpless against sin. I've been finding that I can meet sinners who have ruled over certain types of sin. Like my friends in Arizona, Robert, who's uh, found out that his dad blew his mom's head off in a meth binge. He walked away from meth even before he was born again and never picked it up. Okay? Now, he'll tell you, I believe God helped me. The grace of God was with me. But still, what we see God saying right here, you must rule over it. No one, no one is powerless against sin. No one. Especially the believer. Because the one who was sinless, who took our punishment, who uh, overcame death, now lives in us. And so the old nature is dead. So if you've got sinners who had a fallen nature and God's saying you must rule over sin, how much more so should we have victory over any and all sin? We live in a superior covenant, right, compared to the old. And the reason in the old they struggled is the law, the law was perfect, the sin nature wasn't. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the law supernaturally, that's the word empower, is dunamis. It's a supernatural power. So the law supernaturally empowers sin, which is why diets don't work and all of that. But when you tap into the power of God, right, now you have the supernatural power of Christ who said no to every sin you can imagine. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, now we can. So the Christian has no excuse. Well, that's just how I am. No, no, it's not, right? So I found that very interesting because here's the statement. Faith has always been the response to temptation. It's always been about faith. Uh, Habakkuk, what did he say? The just live by faith, right? It's always been faith. It will always be faith. We just didn't have the nature to be consistent, right? Okay, now, in Luke 4.13, I'm just going to read this to you, and I see that the pages are weird. <laughs> are you having to flip the pages? Yeah. Well, uh, like Jesus upside down? down? How strange. <laughs> my apologies. I was messing with my printer and obviously did something. Okay, in Luke 4.13, this is uh, where he had just tempted Satan, or Satan, Jesus. Now, remember, the enemy, the Lord had been tempted for 40 days by every demonic entity you could probably think of. After his 40-day fast, he was hungry. It's fascinating. That is a true New Testament fast, which I am, you know, Lord, I want to fast that way. Okay, then the enemy comes to him, and according to the Weiss translation, he says, it's apparent by the divine essence in you that you are the Son of God. So Lucifer, now Satan, adversary, accuser, recognized the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. He knew he's God. What he didn't know is that by killing him, <laughs> we'd be like whack-a-moles. There'd be Christians popping up everywhere with Jesus Christ on the inside of them. So it was actually his, that was the hook, right? When the devil had finished every temptation, he temporarily left him until a more opportune time. That's how it works. So you will notice that he would tempt the Lord in his greatest areas of distress or when he was tired. It's amazing how physical fatigue can affect you emotionally. And so he'd always do that. The greatest test would be when, like whenever um, John the Baptist was killed, because you know, they were cousins. He loved them. Uh, when John the Baptist was killed, uh, he needed to get away and grieve, and he couldn't. I'm sure the enemy probably hit him at that point. In fact, can I see your, your Bible real quick? This is interesting, um, and it may uh, be in the app. Let me see if it's here. I think it's in the text. Okay. <clears throat> so remember I was telling you guys, if we look at John 1, 24, in the New Living Translation, it says, And the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? Now, the word prophet is referring to Jesus, okay, but they didn't know it. John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Remember that? thought that was very interesting. Jesus was right there. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Verse uh, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descend, descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is a chosen one. If you look in the app, John and Jesus had been talking about all of those things. They'd already been talking. They'd already, they had a relationship together where they discussed what God was doing. So when he lost his cousin to death, he obviously needed time to grieve. Now, the other thing that's interesting is, did you notice, he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John was looking for that. That was the sign because that's what God told him would happen. But he finished God's sentences. Finishing God's sentences and then it not happening is an open door to a wound. Because remember, John now is in prison for standing up to the political leader at the time. I thought he's supposed to be baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Where's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So he sends his disciples to question Jesus. He says, are you the one? Or should we be looking for another? Guys, that was a temptation. Because John is like, we've had these great talks by the fire. We've, you know, we've dreamed about what God is doing. You're supposed to baptize in the Holy Spirit. You're the Messiah, the long-awaited one. He even told them, he's the one. Go follow him. And then, there's no baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm now in prison, and I will probably end up dead. He didn't have any grid that he was the last Old Testament prophet. He didn't have any grid that the old had to die and the new had to become. And then, what is Jesus' response? Go tell John the things I'm doing. I'm healing the blind, which was a messianic miracle. No one else could do that. I'm raising the dead. I'm doing this, this, and this. And those that are not offended are blessed. Well, and I think, too, John, as a prophet, did not want to think that he was leading people astray and Probably. away from what the truth Very was. Very good, yes. Because, you know, you, there's a burden there that you, if you make that bold statement, you know, oh God, did I miss it? Yeah, and he was trying to finish God's senses and thinking that the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come immediately. He had no grid for the Lamb. He had no grid for the death, the burial, the resurrection. He probably had some idea yeah. But he didn't quite understand how it was all going to happen. But the temptation wasn't necessarily John's I was referring to. For someone not to know you, that has spent time with you, mm -hmm. and then he comes to him and says, are you the one? That was a temptation to be offended. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm the one. We've discussed this. What do you mean am I the one? Like, you know, he could have very easily, that could have been a wound. A piercing to him and I know that to be known is very important for the Lord and for a deed if I feel people don't know me they're no longer safe if you if you can't see me for who I am you're no longer safe if I have a relationship with you if I let you into my world and then like my friend uh, a long time ago who did something and I was like you don't know me so we're no longer gonna be able to have a relationship until that's fixed right that could have been a temptation for the Lord, but he didn't take it. And he probably had the idea that, you know, that you had, Kathy, that he was just wanting to make sure he had the right message out, right? So finishing God's sentences, those things that the enemy knows can get under your skin can be those arrows that wound and then begin to weigh us down. Offense and unbelief lead to sin, as Hebrews 3 has explained. In our text, the danger was offense toward God due to persecution for faith in Jesus. 
To combat this, Paul points out to the heroic faith of those before them who laid down their lives for the promises of God, some never seeing them. He's also pointing to previous martyrs who have run their race. He's letting them know that the trials they are encountering are not new, and others have successfully completed their own. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that arrow tip must be dug out or processed and healed. And don't put God in a box on how he heals you. Okay? He can use mentors. He can use uh, different technology and therapies. He can use the word. He can use a prophetic word. I've been healed of depression twice through a prophetic word. He can do it however he wants. Don't allow people to put stigmas on you because of how the Father decides to take you through that healing process. So there's a process. So the arrow has been broken off, but the tip remained. And each arrow inside in the wounding carried the potential to wear them down so they can no longer run with freedom, eventually resulting in entanglement with sin. So what are those arrows? Psalm 11.2 For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Jeremiah 9.8 Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Psalm 64, 2-4 Hide from me the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting them suddenly and without fear. So arrows can be literal or refer to deceitful words spoken as false testimony and or to spark fear. These can come in the form of thoughts, the evoke fear from or from people's mouths. Back in Paul's day, there was a very real danger, obviously. Now, the enemy suffered wounding of false testimony himself. Remember, they lied about him and said he says that he's, you know, this or that. It was false testimony. So he he has overcome that type of wounding. Isaiah 21.5, they prepared the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink, arise, O princes, oil the shield. 2 Samuel 1.21, O mountains of Gilboa, uh, not Balboa, Gilboa, let there be no dew, dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. What's going on here? Okay. In order to combat arrows, you have to have your shield oiled and anointed, right? So that's what that was. The word oil means to smear and to anoint. It's Massah in the Hebrew. It's um, common usage is to anoint an individual into positions of leadership by pouring the oil on their heads. So anointing or oiling a shield back then was very important for a soldier because of fiery darts, number one. But the shields were made out of leather. And so if they weren't regularly oiled, the leather would get brittle. And so the first arrow was going to go through that shield and kill that soldier or severely wound them, right? So the oil also reflected the sun's rays and blinded the enemy. Okay? So the anointing is a setting apart, but also an immersion in Christ, the anointed one. It's presence-based relationship with God, not rule-based. Presence-based. It goes back to believing that He is, okay, as in a person. Now, 
Ephesians 6, 16 through 18, the Passion. In every battle, battle, take faith, and I love this, as your wraparound shield. It's not just the front. Shield is to cover you, or faith is to cover you. For it is able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies. And take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. Pray passionately in the spirit as you constantly intercede with every form of prayer at all times. Pray the blessings of God upon all his believers. So the shield is faith. Now we're back to where we were. Wounded faith leads to sin. And if you keep those tips in you, it's going to weigh you down. So the answer is presence-based relationship. Oiling that shield of faith. Because true faith is based in knowing that God is good all the time. That's true faith. If you think that He made you sick or that He took away from you or all of those things, you will not be able to trust Him. You will not be able to have faith. It's also knowing who you are. If your heart condemns you, remember we learned that. If your heart condemns you, it makes you susceptible. You can't, you can't believe God in confidence in prayer if your heart condemns you. And according to Hebrews, that's where it starts is with the heart. We give the enemy way too much glory and way too much credit for temptation and condemnation. Most of it begins inside. Okay? So your wraparound shield of faith. I love that. It must require or remain supple. Prayer is not a one-way conversation or request. Prayer is a communion, spirit to spirit, that can carry many forms of prayer. It can be soaking, the word, requests, petitions, intercession, and more. Presence anointed shield of faith. It allows God's goodness to permeate the areas of wounding. It reveals any arrow tips that need to be dug out. Presence is the place of exchange where God's goodness is imparted to you. Okay? Now we're almost done. But I wanted to emphasize presence. You know, Israel was presence-centered. How much more so should we be presence-centered? Okay, let's finish up with verses 2 through 4 about the marathon race. So he said we're able to run life's marathon race, a race that's already been marked out for us. We look away from the natural realm and we focus our attention and expectation onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, which I love that, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. So carefully, consider carefully how Jesus faced with such intense opposition from sinners who opposed their own souls. But that was very interesting. So that you won't become worn down and cave in under life's pressures. After all, you have not yet reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. Okay, now, I love this. Like any good dad, Paul's saying, are you bleeding? Nope, get up. That's what he's saying. Okay? I love that. So we're to keep our gaze fastened on Jesus, not the path. Jesus. That's who we're supposed to be staring at, gazing intently, focusing our attention on it's, you know, again, like trying to drive and not keeping your eyes in front of you. Well, and God showed me, I'd say, 
a few years back, I don't remember. You know, we've had this outbreak of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm having a panic attack. I have, I'm under anxiety. And anxiety is fear of the future. Fear Long of, yeah. you, like you have no control over the situation. And so, he's, you know, I think people that are in tremendous anxiety, mm -hmm. they aren't prepared. They have no preparation. They don't know where they're... Their, their hope lies in their, their confidence, that's mm -hmm. what I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes when we feel like, oh, let's just lay down and die kind of thing, it's because they don't understand where their confidence is, they don't understand, uh, you know, that they're not doing it all by themselves and they don't have to come up with the answers themselves. Mm -hmm. And I do think some personalities are more prone. Yeah. Uh, some wounding, mm -hmm. you know, based in the past can definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you said they uh, don't feel prepared, you know, a lot of people, the anxiety comes from the unknown, right? Um, but they never feel prepared or they need answers. Well, like I, I, I it's like I never know what I'm doing. I, you know, God's like, hey, I'd like you to do this, this, and this. Okay, like I was telling a guy I was mentoring, you know, and, and we it was very interesting because we honed in on what was calling him to uh, causing him to have pa uh, panic attacks. And it was anytime there'd be work meetings where they would go over expectations. And so, what he would do is he would then take that expectation on himself, not the team, but on himself. And I'm like, well. Are you doing a job that's a crap job and you need to be fired? He goes, no. And I said, so what's, what is this? And he said, okay, this is the weirdest memory. I said, okay, well, shoot, tell me. He said, I haven't thought about this since I was a kid. He said, my dad would give us a sledgehammer and tell us to go crush cans. And he said, no matter how we did it or how many times we crushed cans, it was never perfect. We could never crush them like he he wanted us to. And he said, so when you said expectation, that's what entered. And I said, that is a message you received. And now it's telling you that no matter how hard you try, you are not going to be able to do this job. And I said, guess what? You won't. What do you mean? That's not helping. I said, because you're a Christian. You rely on Holy Spirit. You're never going to be perfect. You leave no room for mistakes. It's research and development. Life is research and development. You're supposed to make mistakes. I said, but the anxiety is centered in you're expected to be perfect. And that's not a truth. And he's like, okay. And so I gave him like some tools, you know, before meetings and things like that to help him. But it is. It's an unknown. It's, again, expectations. It's... What, how's this going to turn out? Those are all sources of fear. Well, and I think even in Proverbs, it's just lack of wisdom in areas that maybe you should feel like you should have wisdom in. I mean, you you see kids that they're afraid to go to college. They're afraid to leave home. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that, you know, 30-year-olds that haven't left home yet. Yeah. And a lot of it is because they're not prepared. Right. Well, I told them, I said, you know, let me just put in perspective, not minimize, but put in perspective. Uh, so I just gave them my call. And I said, do you think you'd feel a little bit of anxiety when God's called you to do what I just detailed out to you? And he's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I said, so guess what? I don't know what I'm doing. I, I got ideas. I know a little bit of the direction I'm supposed to go. I'm 
don't know how to take cities and nations and counties and go to the hub. See how many of us there are. You'd probably be thinking, what? You know, I just, I have no idea. And he said, but how, do you, how are you not a basket case? I said, because if God told me to do this, he has confidence in me to do it. And he's already put the things in you to that do I it. need to do yes. it. I may not know where they are, and I'm digging around in drawers every once in a while trying to find them. But it is. And fear is centered in, really, if you look at it, not having a good dad. The thing is, is dads try their best. Parents try their best, unless they're just flat evil. Some are flat evil. Everybody's trying their best. Give them grace. Just, you know, yeah, if if you have to adjust the relationship to a degree, that's fine. But they're doing their best, and they did their best. That We can't put that on them. We do know we have a Father in Heaven who is absolutely perfect, full of goodness, who will never let us down. He says that. So anytime we feel let down, guess what you can do? Go back to expectation. How did you expect at the end? What did you think it was going to look like? Because your expectation may blind you to what he's doing over here that's actually the answer because you're looking over here expecting it to go a certain way. And when, he, when I sent that little deal out, I said, God speaks to our potential. Mm -hmm. He doesn't speak to our lack. Right. He doesn't speak to something he hasn't already put in us to do. Yeah. I mean, that would be an unfair God yeah. to say, uh, go run a race, but I'm not going to give you any legs. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. He doesn't do that. Right. You know, that's right. He sets up a task that he's already put in for us. Now, we may have to search and research and, you know, we, learn, we may have develop to do, skill and acquire knowledge. Yeah. But it's not because he hasn't already equipped us. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now, um, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I've already talked about how we behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into that same image. You become what you behold. So if you become behold your current trial, you become a trial. Bitter, offended, and unbelief in sin. But if you keep focus on Jesus, you will reach your destiny. And it's for that very reason that He sent us Holy Spirit. In John 16, 13, in the English Standard, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, a guide is a leader, and metaphorically speaks of a teaching. So, Holy Spirit teaches us, but the Aramaic says that he plants what is mine and shows it to you. Now, when I was going over my notes this morning, I didn't see this when I first was studying. He plants what is mine, right? He then has to show it to you what he's planted, but it implies growth. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest causes for fear is we expect that we should be further along than we are. It's a planting. There's a growth. There's a time. Now, if you're 30 years old as a Christian still wearing diapers and now you're deformed, there's something wrong. I would wonder... Were you truly born again and spirit-filled? If not, you probably need to handle that right now. And then, you've allowed wounding, you've allowed mindsets to deform you. Because you should not be 30 and still in diapers, right? Or you're root-bound. Or you're root-bound. But, if you are consistently growing, the Lord loves that. He takes pleasure in that. That doesn't bother Him at all. 
but also the word guide back in that day uh, was someone whose job it was to lead others to their destination safely and avoid any mines of danger. That was their job. In other words, a guide, guide had already discovered the dangerous places and now could guide you around those. Meaning there are some trials you don't ever have to taste. Your parents maybe did, your grandparents maybe did, but their ceiling is now your floor. The more dangerous the journey, the more experienced guide you wanted. The journey is challenging enough without adding wounding and attack from sources that you did not have to engage in. That's why I always tell people, if you're encountering a difficulty or a trial, bind the enemy first. Break that attack. Then, if you're still in it, now you're in a process, a journey, where you'll collect things that you need for the next phase of your life, right? He loves process. Uh, and you can trust Holy Spirit to guide you through it with the least pain. Usually the first step is the most difficult, actually. Once you start letting Him lead you, it's like a, a, an adventure. The Holy Spirit's job is to guide you to the other side as safe as possible and the process reverse the curse. Remember, that's one of the definitions of parakletos, one who reverses the curse. He can be trusted. Rely on Him to help keep you focused on Jesus and you know that you've lost focus when wounding, doubt, and unbelief enter your thinking and emotions. Your predetermined destiny and path is given to you because He know, knows you can do it. He's already equipped you with all you need to fulfill it. He believes in you. And the process of getting there is His training for your life so that you can faithfully execute your destiny but also prepare you for future role in His kingdom. Isn't that good? So I just felt like this morning's was a very practical message, you know, on wounding and dealing with those things and how it can lead us into a path that's not uh, for our benefit. So uh, does anybody have anything else or any thoughts or uh, questions or anything before we pray? Well, I had a, on this. So uh, pretty. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, I had a question. I got uh, me a boring black one. <laughs> for the... Um, and that Graham Cook book. Cookbook. Graham Cookbook. Cookbook. And, uh, but it said that, you know, the Holy Spirit, and I thought it's just, it's easy, it's simple, but it's just his job to alert us and get us to pray what God is and knows and wants. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. Yeah. Yeah. Your uh, beard's looking pretty trimmed over there, Richard. Did you do some uh, work on it? I had a bath. <laughs> Looking pretty good. Looking pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, Father, we thank you so much for Holy Spirit. Your extravagant love is, it's just, like Gigi would say, unbelievable. unbelievable. It's not only.